0: Welcome, Iron Radio listeners, to another episode. Um, I'm Robert fortress Fortney, and I'm a journalist, uh, strength athlete, former competitive bodybuilder.
1: And uh, I'm Charles Staley. I am author of Muscle Logic, creator of Escalating Density Training, and I'm also a master's level weightlifter.
2: Uh, Phil Stevens, national record-holding powerlifter, strength coach with Staley Training Systems, and founder of LiftForHope.org.
0: Today, we're actually without um, Dr. Lonnie Lowry. Um, but we have a great guest today, Mike T. Nelson, who is a um, Ph.D. candidate um, in kinesiology, exercise physiology, this type of thing. So welcome, Mike.
3: Hey, guys. How's it going?
2: Good. Good.
0: So um, I was looking through your blog here, and you got quite a bit going on, and you have quite a few qualifications here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about,
3: about your qualifications? Sure. Sure. Um... I've done a CSCS through the NSCA. Uh, I've also done the RKC, the so Russian Kettlebell Certification. And I've done all four levels of the Z-Health Certification. And I'm one of a handful of people that did their uh, Master Trainer Certification also. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, I see on your blog, and for those who are interested, um, Mike has his blog, which is com, correct? That is correct. So people can go there and sign up for his newsletter and so forth. But uh, you'll see just how busy this guy is. Um, your most recent addition um, here is saying that you had to get up very early this morning to uh, do some more work on a, a
3: project you're doing Is for uh, energy drinks or studying energy,
0: energy drinks?
3: Uh, yep, that's correct. I'm doing that as part of my Ph.D. dissertation. And have you come up with any interesting... Uh, observations thus far? Um, not Those so things? far, I haven't I haven't analyzed all the data yet and we're doing it as a randomized um, double-blind, so I don't know, they get baseline and then they come back and get either a placebo or an energy drink, so I don't know which version they get. And mm-hmm. we're looking at the markers of blood flow and we're looking at heart rate variability so trying to determine if there's any changes associated with uh heart rate or heart function and then we're also looking at is it a ergogenic. So if I give you an energy drink and I have you exercise, can you actually exercise longer? So in essence does it really give you energy or not? Mm-hmm. What do you think about the whole proliferation of energy sport drinks? I mean everywhere you go it seems to and
0: I know it's it's like that here in Canada, and I suspect it's much, much worse, actually, in the States. I mean, they're, they're everywhere. I mean, and you see lots of young kids drinking them now, as they did 20 years ago,
3: um, just like,
0: you know, uh, cans of pop and so
3: forth. Um, what do you think of that? Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. The The funny part is, if you look in the literature, there's not a lot of literature on it. There's a couple studies, I think, with, with Red Bull. There was one that actually just came out a couple days ago. They didn't say what they used, but it sounds like Red Bull looking at alterations potentially in uh, heart rate. And that one was actually done in college kids. So they took, uh, I don't remember how many subjects were in it, and they gave them two of the smaller cans every day for seven days. <laughs> and then they measured to see what, what changes. And they sort of found heart rate went up just a bit, blood pressure went up a bit. Um, there's no changes in what they call the QT interval a way of looking at cardiac function mm. um well i thought in general are that they it's hard to say if they're good or bad i i think the bigger issue is the fact that kids are drinking them to get energy and sort of displacing other nutrients out of their diet you know okay. so instead of hey i'm gonna have a go you know nutrition meal like chicken and broccoli or whatever ah eh, screw that i'm just gonna go have energy drink and then i'm gonna go do whatever yeah. So I think it's, you know, probably the combination potentially of both and that they're displacing other things that they need in their diet that they're probably not getting either. Mm-hmm. Now, exercise physiology is what you're specializing in, correct? Yep, that's correct. Yeah, but, I mean, so how does that relate to the
0: kinesiology portion of this?
3: Um, yeah, it's, it's confusing because in universities, kinesiology is just sort of a catch-all term for any sort of movement sciences So here at the University of Minnesota, the kinesiology does actually include sports psychology. It includes coaching. It includes a lot of other disciplines. Mm -hmm. And then the exercise science or the exercise physiology is actually a subdivision here of kinesiology. Okay. And the exercise science is more focused on basically the physiology. So I refer to exercise science as basically physiology in motion. You know, physiology of rest isn't really all that exciting, but once you get <laughs> up and start moving around, it becomes a lot more exciting and all sorts of other stuff happens to make it exciting, so.
1: Hey Mike, this is Charles. Have you, hey Charles. We, we talked about this at my training summit a little bit, but hey ha- have you, have you comparatively looked at all these different energy drinks and arrived at a conclusion as to which one is, uh, is the worst in terms of, you know, caffeine, uh, load or, or sugar content or like, is there one that's just like the most evil one out there?
3: Yeah, the well, the trend was initially uh, Red Bull came on the market, and as people remember, Red Bull had the really small cans. Ironically, yeah. n- not that much caffeine, you know, some sugar and that sort of thing. Um, and then other drinks such as Monster and Rockstar and other things started showing up, and one of their ways to compete in the market was, hey, this stuff is so dirt cheap to make, we'll just make it in a big can, and we'll just market the snot out of it, and hey, look, you get a lot more for your money. So now, you know, Red Bull has bigger size cans. Um, there's another one that I don't even know if it's still in the market. was called Cocaine, I think, if I'm not right. <laughs> that's and right. And I'd
1: forgotten was, about that.
3: God. Yeah, and it was basically just <laughs> a crap ton of caffeine. There's also you know, card strength. That's what I was going to say. You look at red yeah. strength. <laughs> yeah, and it, if you look at it from a manufacturing standpoint, anhydrous caffeine is dirt cheap to buy. Everybody knows the caffeine works I mean you give someone a high enough dose of caffeine and they can feel it so yeah so usually I just look at them and look at the sugar content and how much caffeine is in them sometimes they won't label the caffeine um Hmm. obviously check the serving size you know some cans will say even two or three servings and I mean how many kids you know drink a third of a can and just you know go hey that's enough for me you know (laughs) and it doesn't happen (laughs)
1: Mike has anyone to your knowledge is uh and Rob forgive me for butting in? I just am actually really interested in this like no. has anyone been uh has anyone actually been injured <laughs> for lack of a better term w- using energy drinks? I mean has this led to uh illness or hospitalization in any cases or uh yeah
3: from from what I've seen, supposedly there's some anecdotal reports of case reports of people having overdoses on caffeine that show up every once in a while mm-hmm. um the ironic part is, because when I initially started this, I was like, oh, let to look in the literature and this will, you know, there should be a pretty good idea of what happens. And there's not much. I mean, there's a handful of, I mean, in peer-reviewed journals, there's a handful of studies done on what appears to be Red Bull. And then after that, there's just a couple. And that was about it. Um, there is some reports, you know, to the FDA and that sort of thing about, yeah, okay, I went into the ER and I felt horrible. And they go, what did you have? Well, I had two energy drinks. So, okay, you know, what else did you do and who knows?
1: So, it's, it's so interesting. the ones interesting. reported
3: are, there's not a lot of good evidence really, yay or nay. Hmm. Um, and caffeine's been around for a long time, but it's a you know, novel combination of that with maybe a whole bunch of sugar and maybe some other B vitamins and taurine and yeah. whatever else we decide to put in there.
1: What's interesting, though, and I don't know if you guys agree, but just from a marketing trend standpoint, isn't, aren't energy drinks, I mean, isn't it the same thing as just having a soda? I mean, it's just sugar and caffeine, right? I mean, it's just interesting how there is this new well, product sh- category out yeah. there, and energy basically they're just giving you the same thing but just kind of relabeling it, and now you think it's something different from...
3: I've often thought that myself. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you... Look at the ingredient list. I mean, they're it's not that different from pop, with just more caffeine and some B vitamins and some other things. And yeah, and that, it, what amazes me is like a you know a can of Red Bull's. I don't know what two bucks or something. You know, compared to a can of pop, that's probably at your point, Charles, extremely similar, minus maybe some of the caffeine and a few other minor ingredients. Or
1: if you just so did the bark
3: on it is pretty huge.
1: I was going to say if you were just. Do you know all the people out there that always bitch about how much protein costs and everything? And here's these same people who are probably spending all this money for energy drinks. And frankly, you could just put some sugar and caffeine pills into water and probably get the same exact effect.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Which would was,
1: cost you like pennies.
3: Yeah. Yeah, that was one I when I initially wrote the study, ironically, I had a diet arm in the study. So you get a placebo, a sort of full energy drink, or you get the diet version of the energy drink. So the diet version would have all the other novel compounds, caffeine, whatever, but no carbohydrate. Because at the end of the study, since the people I'm looking at are fasted because we are doing exercise in the morning, the argument could be that, well, the energy drink helped, but it was because of the carbohydrate in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we decided not to do that because it would extend the enrollment of people in the, in the trial, so now they have to make four visits instead of three. And there just really isn't much data showing that an energy drink does anything good or bad so we just went with that instead but
2: yeah i mean the the few cases i've seen where you know people were there was a big to-do about you know kids going to the hospital or whatnot i mean it actually helped the energy drink you know they pulled the crap from the shelves and then everybody wanted it you know sending sending junior to the hospital i need some of that stuff (laughs) yeah
3: i think and yeah. spike had an issue in Colorado off of some weird case report or something, and yeah. <laughs> so, Mike, um, what your
0: your main focus then, or your mo- main interest in all this, is, is movement? Is that correct?
3: Um, yeah, I tend to look at everything just basically from movement, so I I the, your, uh, Go ahead. Well, what? When I look at your blog, there's just so much inf-
0: interesting information you have about just movement and. Uh, incorporating um more dynamic type stretching in in, mm, in yep. your as as you say here, it's you're not a really big proponent of static stretching, so No, I'm not a fan of
3: static stretching. <laughs> yeah.
0: But there's lots of interesting stuff here about just, just things that you don't a lot of you athletes probably don't even think about it as it relates to movement and so forth and uh so I, I suppose yeah that is something that you're very interested in and how do you implement that? more predominantly in some of the people that you work with, your clients and so forth?
3: Sure. Um, so when someone comes in, actually I do see a fair amount of people just for movement stuff only. Um, the two things with that, ironically a lot of pain issues seem to relate to movement quality, which mm. makes sense, right? I mean, everyone knows that, you know, I recently was playing a broom ball game in January and fell and bruised my sciatic nerve in my hip. Obviously I wasn't walking real well. <laughs> And oddly enough, it was painful. Hmm. Hmm. So you move, bad movement and pain seem to have pretty good correlation. Um, the cool thing is that if you can get someone to move better, the pain usually goes away too. Mm-hmm. So I have people that I see for movement issues, and usually you get their movement better, uh, their pain goes down. So, and if my other is that- argument is. No, go ahead. No, I was
0: just going to say, is that, just a, um, is that predominantly just you looking at the person, just just moving it to the whole, like, gait, or is it looking at, like, in an athletic standpoint? I mean, what is the more of a um, dramatic, I guess in an athletic environment, is a much more dramatic kind of picture of maybe where problems lie?
3: Oh, sure. Um, and it's based on the, the Z-Health system. <clears throat> like at the R phase, the Z-Health level, we use just primarily a gait assessment. The, the really cool thing about gait is if I can get someone to walk normal, I mean not – because you tell someone, okay, I'm going to walk, and I'm going to evaluate how you walk. Well, everyone automatically tries to correct everything that's wrong because, you know, everybody wants to win the test, even though they're there to get fixed. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but if, if you've ever told someone to walk the way they should, it it's inherently obvious as soon as they do. Right. They they look really static. They look like there's a pole somewhere where it shouldn't be, and they it just looks fake, you know. Mm-hmm. So if you can get them to walk normal, like what they would really be doing, you can really see everything that's going on. Because if I tell someone to walk, so I say, hey, hey Phil, come here, walk between myself and the speaker across the room. Y- your brain doesn't go, okay, right foot, left foot, okay, extend the right arm, right left arm. You just walk. It's a program that's sort of burned into your brain. They call it autonomous. Mm. And the cool part about that is that it it doesn't get altered much. So you're really seeing what, movement-wise, is what they're really doing. So if you see, for example, their right hip isn't going all the way into extension or their left arm is coming so far across their body, it's almost smacking their right arm, you know. And most of the stuff you look at is, it's relatively obvious once you know what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I primarily use gait. Um There is some other just simple standard range of motion. Okay, hold your arm out. Okay, bring your arm all the way up. Okay, can you get it all the way up? Yes or no. Um, if they're in pain, you know, what, what movement causes you pain? Oh, uh, yeah, it's every time I lunge down on my right leg. Ah, right there. You know, so you're trying to, at a base level, recreate uh, what they can't do. Mm-hmm. And to your point about high level athletics, you're correct that my, my thought is once that's pretty good, um, normally that will transfer quite well to athletics. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next level would be to look at more specific things. So if you're a football player looking at how they're cutting, you know, where are they putting their feet? Um, do they have any pain issues there? Are they, does their movement degrade real fast? For example, marathon runners, right? you watch people start a marathon, you're like, "Wow, they're pretty good." You watch them, they cross the finish line and they're like dragging the third leg, most of them you know sure, yeah. some some point along the way, their movement quality just degraded, so due to fatigue, you will to your point uh you can definitely see changes in movement mhm
0: what what is your own personal fitness regime i mean you're you're such a busy guy i mean how do, how do you work in fitness do you re- your, you know, routine, and what exactly do you do?
3: I do kind of a weird combination of stuff. Like one of my, (laughs) like my three goals for this year fitness-wise was to do the TSD, (coughs) which is a tactical strength competition or challenge. Uh, It's actually tomorrow, tomorrow morning, and it's a max deadlift, raw, and then I'm doing it the elite style, which is a max number of pull-ups plus 25 pounds, and then five minutes of kettlebell snatches with the 70-pound kettlebell. Oh wow! So that oh, one's Christ. kind of a a weird combo of max strength, relative strength, and then strength, cardiovascular type stuff. <laughs> um, because
1: of that, Mike, I would uh, recommend a multi-tiered approach to your pre-workout nutrition. I yeah. would have a there Red Bull. Go. I'd have a Red Bull, a Monster, and a Rockstar. Just so that right. all those bases are covered.
3: Yeah, you got to cover all three, right? <laughs> um, so I do that. My other goal is actually do a, a standing backflip by the end of this year. Yeah, so I just saw you stand. and your girlfriend doing that. Yeah, so we're practicing doing some headstands, um, which for me is really interesting because so I have some visual issues I'm still trying to work on. So as soon as my head goes down and my feet go above my head, I have no idea where I'm at. <laughs> It's just like, whoa. Um, and to accomplish it, I actually am lucky. I have a, a base hole setup that I bought for my garage about two years ago. I I got so pissed off at working in most training facilities that I said, screw them, and I'm just going to open one in my garage. And, hey, if it fails miserably, I I still got a really nice power rack and stuff in my garage. So <laughs> so it's nice to have people come over, have people train barefoot, you know, you can drop weights, listen to loud music, and then if I ever want to lift I just basically walk out my door. So that's helped a lot. It cool. looks a little chilly out there at times. Yeah, it's it's kind of ironic. I I live in a townhouse so it doesn't get too bad. The coldest it's ever been is seventeen degrees. Um average temp in the winter is about forty degrees. So I actually bring the bar and the kettlebells and stuff inside so that when I bring them out, they're room temp, so my hands don't stick to them. <laughs> yeah, I
1: always, I always prefer to not stick to the uh, implements I'm lifting yeah. myself.
3: Yeah, it's yeah. Straps are nice once in a while, but your hands sticking to it is no, not so good. Beyond shock. So,
0: <laughs> what do you think is the greatest advantage to um,
3: using a, a kettlebell training for an athlete? Um, I, depends on the level of athletes too. Um, I like it for most what I call every sort of everyday athletes because um, basically just even doing a kettlebell swing, it's a lot of glute activation. It's a full-body exercise. Uh makes really good conditioning. Um, even doing like a Turkish get-up, people aren't familiar, you basically lay down with your arms sort of extended with your back flat on the floor and then through a progression of movement you end up standing up with the kettlebell or you can use dumbbells too, still above you. So mm. it's kind of a nice three-dimensional movement and even beyond that the the thing i really like is that it's different because you know some of the people that i see are basically people who you know exercise hasn't worked so well for them in the past <laughs> you get athletes who are really good at athletes and they don't like to exercise which seems kind of ironic some of them mm-hmm. and then you've got the everyday person who's like yeah i've been to a gym i've tried all that stuff nothing works and i just go hey well this isn't the same thing you've been doing before You know, this is a different system, and the exercises are different. So trying to get them out of that mold of, hey, this isn't going to work for me, and to the, oh, well, maybe this will work because it's different. (laughs) Mm. Um, And so they can't really, so if they're learning a swing and they're having a hard time with it, it's like, well, it's new. You've never done one before. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, so it's also, I think, helps to try and get them out of, mentally that state of I'm not going to succeed because this is what I did before into something that's different. Um, and then also, I mean, realistically, in terms of like periodization and stuff, and I had a guy come to me once and I asked him, I said, well, you know, what have you been doing for training lately? It's like, ah, oh, here's my routine. Okay, I and go, okay, cool. How long have you been doing that? And then he goes, 13 years. <laughs> I hope he's not listening to this call. Um, I had someone like 13 years? You've been doing the same thing. And I'm like, he's like, yeah. I'm like, well, how's your progress? He's like, oh, it sucks. (laughs) I'm like thinking, well, yeah. (laughs) But I said, well, how? why so long? He's like, well, you know, a trainer 13 years ago wrote it for me, and I I thought this was what I needed to do. (laughs) So Mm. basically trying to give him something that's so completely different just from an adaptation standpoint, too. You know, they can see more progress. Um they can see themselves advancing. And it's nice. I Maybe mean, look can pick up kettlebells, they can, you know, do them outside, which is awesome. I mean I think people spend way too much time inside, myself included. Um, they can just do them at home. They don't need to spend, you know, fifty bucks on a gym you know, every month or whatever. So I think those are the real big advantages. What is what is it what is the ease of actually incorporating that type of training into like a more traditional weight training routine? Um it's not too bad. I mean, as long as, obviously, you know what you're doing. I mean, there's all sorts of different routines, and the way I use them in general is I have people do just, you know, your basic exercises. You know, have, you know all guys want to bench press, you know, which is cool. Um, you know, bench press, squat, deadlift. I try to get them to do some, you know, strongman-type exercises. We got, you know, big tire. We got the 16-pound sledgehammer. We got you know, the 80-pound sandbag that says body bag on it that scares the neighbors and has them running into their, you know, garage and they see it running down the street with that thing. Um, So usually the combination of stuff that people do is, you know, just some real basic exercises. And then at first most people get, you know, kettlebell swings and Turkish get-ups. Once they get pretty good at those, you can kind of move them into maybe a kettlebell snatch or a press. Um, The nice part is, I think, for conditioning-wise, It's something they can do to, you know, they're trying to get more of a a fat burning effect. You can get their heart rate up. It's still usually a full body exercise. I don't like people having to do a lot of work on treadmills. I think that does some goofy stuff to you neurologically. Um, And plus, I think you can go outside and, you know, enjoy the nice weather and do them at home. You know, people are like, oh, I can't afford a gym. I don't have time to get there. Hey, go go grab your kettlebell, just go outside your door. You know, you just save yourself a half hour or an hour. Mm-hmm. You know, so trying to eliminate the excuse of, you know, I don't I don't really have time. Um an easy way if you want to just split them is to say, yeah, do some basic, basic exercises and maybe we'll just use kettlebells for just conditioning. We're right. just doing, you know, swings and that sort of thing. So yeah. So, just so people know we're talking to Mike Nelson here,
0: uh Michael Nelson, his uh blog, if you care to go and look at it, which you should, because it's got some really cool stuff on it, is com. So I think maybe we should move into the topic of the day. What do you, what do you think, Charles?
1: I'm up for it.
2: Sounds okay. Good, yes.
1: I need my music, man.
2: I'm queuing it up right now.
1: Come on, come on.
2: <laughs> Sleeping on the job.
1: I need more cowbell.
2: <laughs> come on, man.
1: One of these times I'm going to figure out what that means, but uh, until then, uh, today's topic is the uh, periodization of training and nutrition, and uh, we'll get into the nutrition part in just a little bit because I don't think most people think uh, periodization is something that can be applied to nutrition, and uh, I'm not exactly sure how that would work myself, but we'll discuss that. But but first and foremost, I just want to kind of define what we mean by periodization and um, Also, maybe differentiate it from cycling. So by periodization, we don't mean like, you know, uh, on Mondays I do this, and on Wednesdays I do this, and on Fridays I do that. That's kind of, I would term that cycling. Periodization really is kind of a longer-term approach. It's um, kind of a a planning uh, model that that spans weeks and or months, and frankly, it can actually span years, and um, it... um, originated in the training of competitive athletes. And, um, you know, another way to understand what periodization is is to look at the opposite of periodization, and that would be just complete randomization and uh, and having no planning. So t- to me that would be the uh, the opposite of periodization. Which is
0: and, probably most most akin to the uh, traditional type, type of bodybuilding routines.
1: Yeah, I think so. You know, like, hey, what do you want to do today? Well, let's do biceps. So... um you know by the way i think you can have i think you can have a certain degree of randomness within the context of a plan and and that's i think how the best systems work but let me throw a hypothetical at you guys and see what you think um i have a 20 year plus martial arts background and um you know i don't know if you've ever thought of this but the belt system in karate is basically a form of periodization you learn certain basic skills when you first start And and at some point you get your you start off as a white belt and then you start off as a yellow then then you get your yellow belt once you learn certain skills and then the idea is is that the skills that you learn as a yellow belt are foundational to the things you're going to need as a green belt and then the skills you learn as a green belt are the uh, things that you need to get your brown belt and so on and so forth so um, you know the the tenets here are that you go from general to specific. You go from uh, volume to intensity. And, um, but here was my experience in traditional karate, and I think this is very common. And as I describe this, I want you guys to think about your own training and, and the way that most people train and see if they're making this kind of same mistake. But, um, you know, as a white belt and a yellow belt, you learn these very basic skills like stances, you know, how to, how to get into a front stance. And these things are kind of very static. And, uh, you learn how to block various attacks, you know, with these kind of very, um simple and, and frankly unpractical. Like, do you guys know what a rising block is or an upward block? You ever, you ever sure. see just kind of dumb karate stuff in movies on TVs? The guy throws a punch at your face and you take your forearm and, and kind of pass it in front of your face and deflect the punch upward? Those sorts of things. Of course, yeah. So, now, Clearly, that has limited relevance to actual self-defense. But if you're starting from from nothing, you gotta you gotta start somewhere, and you gotta just learn the basic idea that okay, if a punch is coming up high, the the most efficient thing is is to to deflect it upwards, and then if if somebody's kicking you in the groin, it makes more sense to deflect it downwards, and so forth and so on. But what I've found, and 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 believe me, this is still the the state of the industry in most uh, karate schools, is that even when you're a black belt, you still spend like three quarters of your time doing that beginner stuff that you learned as a white belt and a yellow belt, right? So um, there, there's, there's, you know, there is this progression where you learn newer things and more sophisticated techniques and strategies as you go through the belt ranks. But you know, personally, I always thought that um, as you uh, as you get to like brown belt level. You're not blocking anymore, man. I mean, you know, you can't, that just stuff does not work in real life. I don't know. Do you guys remember the old, uh, remember uh, the show In Living Color? And, uh, of course. There was a great skit with Jim Carrey as a karate instructor. And he had these three women there. And, <laughs> and he's like, okay, I want you to stab me with the knife like this. And he, like, shows them how to do it in this very, like, exaggerated, it was like an overhead stab, right? Like, kind of like, uh, you know, like a downward stab with the knife, and so he'd be, okay, ready, go, and then she would like stab him in the chest, and he'd start bleeding. He goes no, not like that, and you know, and it just kind of—it's really funny. It just really highlights the the stupidity and and the the artificiality, if that's a word, of, of of what they teach. So anyway, I wonder how many of us who lift weights are kind of still doing yellow belt stuff, even though we're we're brown belts, you know, or black belts.
0: I think I think there's a there's a relevance to what you're saying as far as sometimes when you start the most important things you learn are the first things and you end up years later as a adv- more advanced version of what you were coming back to the original things um and, you know and, and utilizing them in a better way i mean certainly what you're saying has has also a, a point to be made as far as um underachieving also because I have, a, I think a lot of athletes have a tendency when they get to a certain level of, of proficiency at what they do to actually underachieving or um, undervaluing what it is that they can actually do and they kind of revert back I to those true. those initial ways of doing things. I mean, I, I can say from a personal standpoint, I, I do that a lot. I actually um, underperform. And I I design a lot of my routines around underperformance and then I have to almost consciously change my way of looking at it and say, Well, I'm I'm better than that. I mean not from an arrogance standpoint but
1: um So listen Rob, that's a great point and one one of the beeps that I've always had about periodization is that, you know, if you if you read a couple of books on periodization and then try to apply that stuff in a very uh in a very rote manner you know, if you're like in a volume stage or if you're like in a preparatory phase and, and like you're not gonna have if if you're having a day where you're like you know you could hit a new PR, guess what, man? The program doesn't let you do it because that's not what you're supposed to be doing.
0: Well, I mean there's important you know? I, I was talking with Phil about last night, I went in for my bench press workout and I did what was the scheduled um percentages. I hit them and at the end of this, this little mini cycle that I call it I I felt good so I just decided to kind of hit a couple singles just sub singles just to see where I was and give you a better perspective of where I was at and yeah that was in part of the program but um I I think that's something that comes with with
3: well,
1: experience. but but what you're illustrating is what I mentioned a minute ago where the, the best periodization point, uh uh systems allow a certain degree of flexibility within the uh within the context of a of a bigger template and that's just Absolutely. what you did and and, and so you know, over time you learn this stuff instinctively, but, uh, it'd be nice if you could shorten the learning curve for people who sort of, um you know, apply these concepts too rigidly. Um, so that's, and- Well, I think
0: the problem is that, is people, um, often learn things done, learn things the wrong way. And so a greater effort down the road is made to actually unlearn all these mistakes that they made, and then figure out the right way to do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, that's that's just a product of again that what is put forth in the media and so forth of all these types of things. I mean, we all know that. I mean,
1: yeah. And by the way, I want to make another point too, just so I don't lose the thought. But Mike was, Mike Nelson was talking about his client who was doing the same thing, thing for thirteen years. That is clearly uh, not periodization. And but you know, the opposite is not either. Uh, doing completely random stuff every time and never doing the same workout twice—that's not a good plan either. So, it's um, the trick is to balance the competing demands of progression with um, consistency, right? So there has to be a common theme all the way through, but at the same time you can't do the same thing every time. And, and I, you know, I, I've, I've in, in articles and in seminars I always sort of liken this to learning languages in school. I mean, you wouldn't learn uh, English and first grade, Italian and second, German and third, Spanish and fourth, and you know whatever and fifth. I mean, you just kind of never get anywhere. But at the same time, if you only learn English every year, you also don't get anywhere. So it's a matter of finding the sweet spot between progression and consistency.
2: In in my own training, I mean, what I see is very much it, it's those those early basic programs. Yeah, I think everything's kind of set out for you. Or if you're lucky enough to have a coach, then, you know, they set it out for you and they're able to do the variables for you. But, I mean, you you get in there and you learn the basics of how you work and how far you can push things. And then, you know, the planning, like you said, there has to be at least one variable left wide open. I mean, whether it's load, whether it's the amount of reps or the amount of sets, you know, for any given day. Um, Because you just can't, I can't tell you how I'll feel tomorrow, let alone six months from now and trying to plan that far ahead. So you have to leave some kind of leeway, I mean, in your program like I just put together a twelve week scrap program. And I have loads. But other than that, it's pretty much open. I have loads and sets and then it's well, it's what I can get when I work real hard.
1: Yeah, it's not it's not really <laughs> possible know? to predict you know, you could you could put a twelve week program together for yourself today and start it on Monday. The problem though is, you know, it's quite hard to predict how you're going to be doing in exactly. six weeks? Uh,
0: that, that's that's my problem with so people who are way too much sticklers for that kind of thing is because yeah you don't know exactly how you're going to feel. I mean the best intentions will get crushed if, if your you know biorhythms, whatever that means, or whatever um, just the demands of life are such that you know it kind of completely collapses the program that you have good intentions to follow.
2: So uh, yeah, there's there's got to be some sort of balance between that. I well, mean, then they're they're crippled because then it's like, well, what do I do? You, if you're going to – that's the other thing. If you plan an exact periodization, you better have a plan B.
1: That's you know? a great point, and have a backup.
2: Be, have a backup. So it's not going right. That means I do this. No, that that's is a good point.
0: What
2: if you are what if you get to
0: week four and all of a sudden, okay, this is what I'm kind of presenting. Wait, am will say hit, and you're nowhere near
1: that.
2: Yeah, and if you come the, in, you're uh, having an off day. You better have a plan B ready or people just sit there and get – stressed out, depressed, and walk out, and, you know, they don't
1: do a thing. By the way, there's, a, there's another way to kind of do this, and this is a subtle shift in, in, in terminology, but rather than saying that, you know, three weeks from today, I'm going to bench uh, 85% for six sets of three, um, what you can say is, you know, that's the target.
3: Yeah. You
1: know, that's the goal. And, and then that just provides the understanding that, you know, hey, it may not be there, but that's what we're going to try to do.
0: Well, that's definitely a good idea because, I mean, how often do you see yeah. athletes, who don't have that type of mentality, and they go in there and they and they fail with a set or even a rep and all of a sudden the rest of the program is all shot to hell because psychologically they've been you know they've been decimated. So I mean, where do you go from there, right? You start a new program, yep, you know, yep. uh, not train for a month, uh, you know, just just revert back to
2: just going and doing pumping a bunch of bicep sets. Like, what do you do?
3: <laughs> well, the
2: other thing that I think is often misused, I guess, or mistreated, is like you guys were saying, underachieving. People said it, you know, it's my goal to hit 405 for the first time in squat this day. And they go and they hit that 405, but they really had 450 in them. But they don't take it. Yeah. You know, you also got to strike when the iron's out. If you get up there and you hit your projected goal and it was easy, go get it. You know, there's only so many of those days that are great.
3: You know, know (laughs)
2: take them. No, that's a perfect example you know, help people probably need to think more
0: because... Again, to, to predict the human body and, and where your performance is going to be at any given time is, is next to impossible, um, unless you are on like you know boatloads of hormones and chemicals that can
1: more kind of you know <laughs> you're taking too much monster.
0: Well,
2: you are taking too much
1: monster. But, but by the way, I just want how many how many people here and and if you are listening in, I mean, how many times have you gotten a new PR? Uh, let's say you get a 405 and it's a new PR, and even though you have 40 extra pounds in you, you don't take it because you're so freaking excited and happy with yourself that you got the 405 that like you're done, <laughs> you know. And that that calls into play the you know the, the whole idea that there is no you know there's an old weightlifter saying which is the there is no joy in victory and there is no sorrow in defeat, and all that means is just to have a measured approach and. Don't get too excited by your uh, by your successes, and don't get too dejected by your failures. And but there's also
0: something to be said for never actually performing to well, not never, but very very rarely performing to your your maximum. Um, you know, there's that saying from I think it was a Dirty Harry movie, actually, something to the effect of you know, a man must know his limitations. And or um, another one I like is when saying just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean you should. Um, yep. So if you think you got more in the tank going to what Phil says, yeah, maybe go for it if you're feeling it. But yep. um, to push it right to the edge sometimes is is really not a good idea as well. Because, I mean, if, you, if you're at a, at a level that you can actually safely kind of do those types of things, you should also have a mind to understand kind of when you're at a sub-max to kind of extrapolate a bit and find out, well, okay, I don't really need to push this right to the edge to kind of know kind of where I am. I mean, you can you can have a good guesstimate, you know,
2: within 15, 20 pounds. That's uh, uh, it's all learning how, I mean, the, the way I got to it was, was reading up and training in a West Side-ish type of a program. And it, the goal yeah. is, you know, yeah, you're to go in there and do sets above 90 percent, but the main goal on any given day is to go in and work hard. Mm-hmm. If you strain real hard, it's okay. You've done your work. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And if five percent makes you strain that day, that's okay. That's what you had. That. Yeah, day. Yeah.
1: It's the process that matters <clears throat> more so than the result. Um, so, the pro- you know, that's a, a very good point.
2: I mean, that's where it's learned. You know, if, if I'm going for a PR and I, I, I'm hoping for this and I hit it and it's easy, it's like okay, I just make that split decision. Well, I'm getting a double then. You know, bam, bam, right, and then you right. just do two. You know, it's like you know, it's just learning that, and it takes a lot of learning of yourself and being able to read yourself. And I don't suggest anybody. Try something that's, unless they're sure they're going to get it. Because then it's well, time you're going to.
0: Well, done it, but. well my, my whole way of thinking of this is I always say, you know, you should, have, you should always have a um, a reasonable expectation that you have a possibility of getting it. Yeah. I mean, but how many times have we seen guys that go into the gym and, you know, they hit, you know, on, I'll just use the bench for an example, you know, 185. They'll do it for, you know, six crappy reps, and then all of a sudden they put, like, 300 on.
2: You know, these guys have no
0: idea what they're doing. They have no idea, to again, to use the same word, to extrapolate any sort of information from what they're capable of and then to attempt some, something with a reasonable expectation that they might succeed. Um, you know, and like you say, Phil, that's something that just comes with so much time. I mean, to kind of have an idea of, you know, okay, well, I did this. That should mean I should have a reasonable expectation of being able to do this. And that's something that you can't teach somebody. You just have to, somebody has to just train for a long time and kind of, come To an understanding about strength and how strength works and how it, that relates to them and their own performance.
1: And get a coach, you know, shorten the learning curve for yourself if you're a beginner and get a coach. and uh, you know and and so I think you know on this topic, the bottom line is if you're going to employ a system, that system should make life better for you. So periodization is a system, and if it's a good system for you, it's making your life easier and not harder. So make sure that periodization serves you. Uh, as opposed to you being a slave to, to the system. And, uh, you know, there's many different approaches, but the bottom line is that periodization should be a way to ensure that you have uh, continuity in your training as well as progression. And also uh, it should be a way to ensure that that you have recovery in between difficult efforts and uh, You know, again, think of this. Think of all the parallels there are between periodization and, like I mentioned earlier, karate or uh, the school system. You know, the the grade system in schools is just a form of periodization. Sure. You know, things get more difficult and more challenging as you go, and every every period. Now, in in training, a period might be a week or a month, but in school, uh, a period might be a year, and whatever you learn in the first period is Going to be foundational uh, and will help you learn what you're going to learn in the second period. So there should be a building on, kind of an adding on, kind of uh, concept going on here, and that's all it is. Um, you know, I would like to
0: talk a little bit about the whole concept of um, periodization and as it relates to nutrition.
1: Yeah, we we haven't gotten to that yet. Yeah, that's, I, I wouldn't where's like Lonnie that. when we need him, then
0: I know that, that would be beneficial. I, I
1: think it's probably more accurate to apply cycling to nutrition. I, I can't imagine anyone eating differently, uh, you know, in June than they would in April. Uh, but I could imagine that if you're having a taper week prior to a meet, that that your caloric needs may not be as, as great. Um, well, I was going to
0: say, know. I think I think as it relates to nutrition, there definitely would be a shortening you know, of what would be the, the duration of the periods. Because, yeah, I mean, you can have um, days where, you know, okay, well, for the next two days I'm going to eat, you know, this this kind of, quantity and volume, and then you kind of taper that off to, to actually eating, under-eating. Yep. Mean, but, yeah, but, I mean, you can't do that. I mean, looking at it from a longevity standpoint, you can't have these periodized, like you say, where, yeah, you're eating for a month one way, and then the next month you're eating entirely different. But, um, well,
1: you know, you know what? I, I'll tell you what. That's a, that's a very good point. And, you know, in, in training periodization, a microcycle is typically a week, right? But I think if you were to apply this to nutrition, a microcycle might be an hour, So, (laughs) uh, and I wish Lonnie was here to talk to talk about temporal nutrition, but you know that's a concept where um, most of your carbohydrates are taken in early in the day, and most of your fats are taken in later in the day. You could view that as a form of cycling.
0: Of course, I mean, and you can, and uh, you also can can formulate your eating directly to to what your periodized system is in your actual lifting or training. depending if you're in a mass cycle or a strength cycle or a power cycle or, you know, an active rest cycle. I mean, those things also can be taken into effect, but those kind of meld those two things completely. So
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the larger scheme of things. I mean, me eating eight weeks out from a meat, I mean, it's ugly. <laughs> it's big, you know, and then me after yeah. a meat, you know, yeah. And then you get into the whole the big things now, I mean, post-workout nutrition, pre-workout nutrition, you know, people breaking it down into hours, and then, you know, from there, carb cycling daily, you know. Some people get into that type of thing, and, you know.
1: I do know sometimes people, I talk to people frequently who, who claim that they eat differently in the summer than the winter, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, less less total calories, generally speaking. Um, I hear, you know, and, and by the way, um, this just occurred to me right now, but... Uh, you know, one way to think about periodization in terms of nutrition is to be eating seasonally available foods, right? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, so uh, nature almost kind of dictates the, the point. The what happens, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mike, you can weigh in on any of this at any time.
3: Oh, yeah. Um, I, I like that was exactly Charles' point. I found that it's easier, especially I live in Minnesota, so it's easier to um, sort of cycle it or periodize it, however you want to phrase it, uh, to cutting back more in the summer, that usually matches, you know, clients' goals and that sort of thing too. And then, like in Minnesota, it's easy to get berries and that sort of thing that actually taste well. You know, that mm-hmm. time of the year, you know, strawberries in the middle of December just don't taste very good,
2: <laughs> and they're crazy
3: expensive too. Um, so I found that approach tends to to work pretty good because you can eat a lot of berries. They're, you know. Low in calories and nutritious and all that kind of stuff, too, and you're trying to cut back on your overall calories. Mm-hmm. We Very do the cool. opposite of the rest of the country here in Arizona. You guys all come outside yeah, you guys in a little the summer.
2: Different. We we <laughs> all start cramming the food in and staying inside all summer long.
1: Yeah, that's actually <laughs> kind of true. the inverse. Yeah, it is kind of true.
2: Because we step out the door, and it, just stepping out the door will melt like 15 pounds off you. Just <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, hey, guys, good show. Uh, Mike Nelson, thanks for joining us uh, today.
2: i got got at least one question here.
1: Oh, okay, I'm sorry.
2: From Lonnie. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. Texas. Um, His first question is, uh, I was wondering uh, how much money Fortress spends on hair product. Hair product? (laughs) (laughs) I don't have any (laughs) hair. But (laughs) do you
1: you need... uh, do you use product to uh, keep the hair at bay? I mean, maybe that's like, do you use like Nair or something? Or? Now it's <laughs> probably a
3: lot, of Nair. No. And, uh,
2: he was wondering um, if Mike could explain his academic work on metabolic inflexibility in a nutshell.
3: Ah, oh, sure. Um, the overall, although I am using energy drinks, the overall concept is what's called metabolic flexibility. And we're just using energy drinks, ironically, to kind of push it around to see what variables change. The concept is, I think it was originally in the literature maybe about five years ago, I think, and probably a little more than that. And What it's looking at is that we know if we take, say, a diabetic, diabetics are very metabolically inflexible. They have a very hard time dealing with uh, carbohydrates, maybe some fats to a degree, but everybody seems to agree that they have a hard time dealing with carbohydrates. Um, So On the opposite side of the spectrum, as someone who is very healthy, uh, they should be very metabolically flexible. They should be able to, on a, on a fine scale, switch between uh, you know, mobilizing fuels that they need and also processing incoming foods. So they can eat carbohydrates and fats. And proteins don't seem to vary too much between people um, but not really have any issues dealing with them. They know, for example, as I mentioned, diabetics, you give a diabetic a lot of uh, carbohydrates, they have a hard time dealing with it. So we're trying to look at the opposite. So how would you measure metabolic flexibility? The stuff that's in the literature right now is just looking at insulin clamp studies. So you and took somebody up to a whole bunch of IVs, and you cram a whole bunch of glucose into them, and you cram a whole bunch of insulin into them, and you see what happens. Um <laughs> Yeah. It's
1: hey, Phil, so, we could try that with you next week. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> and it it works, but it's highly invasive, it's expensive, all that kind of stuff. So it's not done a whole lot. So we're trying to look at a way, uh, hopefully using uh, respiratory exchange ratio, which, as people know, is a number when you're hooked up to the metabolic cart, The thing that measures the gases when you expire into a little tube um, that tells you, how much fats and how much carbohydrates you're burning. So we're applying some math that's used in heart rate variability. So we're applying some variability analysis to that. And the end goal is that hopefully we'll have a non-invasive way of possibly measuring metabolic flexibility. So in the future, let's say you've got someone who wants to really lose weight. And they come in, you start this new exercise program, you bring them back in, you do your baseline measurement, bring them back in, let's say, three weeks, four weeks, whatever. And they go, oh, man, I only lost two pounds. They go, oh, that sucks. <laughs> and they get, oh, very unmotivated and want to leave. But maybe you could measure, say, metabolic flexibility in a non-invasive way and give them this marker and say, well, you know, you know, junior, you've only lost two pounds. But, hey, look, at this goal, score, you're actually becoming much more metabolically flexible. You're becoming mm-hmm. more metabolically healthy, metabolic fitness, that sort of thing. Um, So it may be a way to, one, monitor people and then do an intervention, say exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, It may have all sorts of other applications, too. So its metabolic flexibility is the the fine-scale ability of your body to switch between carbohydrates and fats. Mm. And I also think in relation to what we're talking about, it may explain some people who perform better on a more carbohydrate diet. I mean, some people perform better on a more fat-based diet. Some people, like I volunteered for the Ram Race, Race Across America last year. Um, these guys, cyclists, the team before, started in the West Coast and ended up on the East Coast, you know, less than seven days later. And initially you're thinking, oh, they got all these protein drinks, they got everything all timed out, oh, it's going to be perfect. And by day three you realize it's like whatever they want to eat that doesn't make them nauseous. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, and People would eat whatever. I mean, the most ungodly things, and their body just turned into fuel, no problem. Yeah. So that's kind of the overall concept. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Got one more quick one. Um, I knew this one would be coming here. Uh, what do you think about energy drinks with alcohol? Bad idea. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Is there such a thing?
3: Yeah, I'd like it'd be. You probably get a lot of college kids to sign up for that mm-hmm. study, right?
1: <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. I I heard anecdotally there was oh, maybe it was published. I'd have to go look. There was actually, a, oh, or maybe it hasn't been published yet, a couple of studies, I think, from Europe that were trying to look at that. Um, yeah, no one really knows yet because, I mean, you've got, you know, caffeine and sugar, and you know, caffeine especially is a stimulant. You know, alcohol, in essence, is more of a depressant and both of yeah. mimic a stimulant depending on quantities and time. So it's, yeah, it's it's interesting. i will be interesting to see what happens with that. It's
1: you get like a DUI a coming back from the gym, you know?
3: Yeah. Man. The people that are drunk now, you got the wide-awake hyper people and they're drunk. So That's even worse. Some of the theories <laughs> was that it they may not perceive how much alcohol intoxication they have because of the effects of caffeine, but I haven't seen much written on that yet. So. Hmm. Sounds good. Yeah.
2: Well,
3: uh, Mike, we all thank you for coming.
2: That's yeah, thanks guys for having me. Definitely greatly appreciate it. Thank it you, Mike. Good time. Yeah, we'll have to do it again, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, until next week, everybody. All right. Good have show, guys.
1: Time. Talk to you next time. Good train. Okay. The I Radio Podcast. All of the audio on I Am Radio.org.
0: If you're interested in a diet or an exercise
1: program, it's important to check with your physician also should be helped with predictive IHQs,
3: anorexia, and qualified exercise well physiologists.